This podcast is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. It not only educates its students about today's communication industry, but it produces innovative leaders. For more information, go to ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Andrew Alexander, a former Washington Post ombudsman, a former Washington bureau chief for Cox Newspapers, and an award-winning veteran journalist with more than four decades of experience. We're talking about the domestic and global impacts of President Donald Trump's characterization of the American news media as being enemies of the people. He spells out some of the dangers this president poses to the First Amendment and how he differs in that regard from past presidents. Andy, you've been in the business for over four decades and in various capacities as a bureau chief and reporter and and ombudsman. Yet this whole climate now of fake news and the emergence of the press being the enemy of the people and that phrase being said repeatedly – All of this is really different than anything you've had to deal with in in the four decades that uh, you've been in the business. Yes, this is clearly a different era. You know, anytime you go into journalism, you you really understand you're not going into a business where you expect to be loved. And there is a natural contentious relationship, as there should be, between members of the press and elected officials. But this is different. I think it's the rhetoric used by President Trump specifically. I think it started uh, sort of um, him calling reporters among the most dishonest human beings on earth. And then pretty soon we were scum and then the lowest form of life and then corrupt media and then uh, opposition party. But I think the one that probably went further than anything else was the phrase enemy of the American people which, of course, uh, historically, in some respects, is very dated to Roman times. It's it's sort of designating a class of political opponents. But I think most people my age, most people uh, who remember the Soviet era, really refer to that phrase in connection with Lenin, when he would refer to opponents as enemies of the people. And in that same phrase, or that same sentence, he would say these are enemies that should be considered outlaws and should be arrested and tried. So that has a very different connotation. Well, it started with Lenin, but then it was taken up by Stalin and extended even further to to butchery. That is correct, yeah. So people who are sophisticated enough to know the history of this, when, when the president of the United States, the leader of the free world, uses that phrase uh, in attacks against the press, that that has a chilling feeling to it. Well, it seemed like uh, the earlier uh, slurs, if I can use that term, uh, against uh, the press and against the media, it sort of rolled off people's back. And, and at first people thought, oh, that's, that's just uh, Trump and he's just being bizarre. But that phrase that, that we've been talking about, enemies of the people, 
it, that's the one that seemed to really be the trigger <laughs> to to yeah. prompt at least some form of response. Yes, uh, it does. And I, I think also that um, what is disturbing about that phrase and his repeated use of it is when you look at some of the more recent surveys of how Americans view a free press. There was a, uh, a survey, a national survey, not long ago, within the last couple of weeks, in which uh, 43% of self-identified Republicans said that President Trump should be able to shut down any news organization engaging in, the question said, bad behavior. Now, that left bad behavior to be defined by the president. Uh, and, and before anyone thinks that I'm working out on Republicans, it was a much lower percentage of Democrats who believed that, but 21% of independents believed it. And then that same survey showed that 48% of self-identified Republicans uh, believe the press is the enemy of the American people, actually using that specific phrase. So it has to be looked at in the context of people's attitudes toward the First Amendment. And we know the First Amendment is very fragile. And then once you start losing these freedoms and walk that back, it's very hard to get back to a point where you have a truly independent and free press. At one point, uh, President Trump, uh, if you recall, was talking about uh, changing libel laws. And he actually was talking about it in the sense of changing statutory libel laws, which don't exist. Exactly. <laughs> libel is a, is a common law that's come up through the courts through, through – uh, the British common law system that we inherited. But but mm -hmm. it, it, that even showed another trigger point, I guess, is what I'm trying to say, that, that he is perceived to have the power to do that. Yes, which is disturbing, I, I think. It gets us closer to an authoritarian concept of the press. And, of course, his view of what is accurate information tends to be whatever he thinks favors him or his interpretation of truth. And uh, that's not what journalism is all about. It's an independent look and pursuit of truth. How, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, how do you think that we got to these facts and figures that you were citing, these poll numbers? I mean, it, it's yes, it's Donald Trump and it's the drumbeat, but is that all there is? No. I think there's more of it, uh, more to it. And, um, you know, let's start with the fact that it's a, a trust in media, however you define media, has been uh, declining steadily for many, many years. And uh, in 1997, so about 10 years ago, uh, when people were asked in a survey about uh, whether they had a great deal or a fair amount of trust in media, in the press, uh, it was at about 55%. By 2016, it was down to 32%, and it's declined further since then. So I think, uh, why is that? I think a couple things. One is, there's just more media um, than there ever was before. And second, I think it hard, becomes harder for people to uh, understand who is a journalist or even what is journalism. And so... Uh, you know, they, they have a hard time with questions like this. Now, when you look at more recent surveys, um, there is a more nuanced view of this, and that is that when you ask people about their level of trust 
or their regard for the media, meaning generally the media, uh, it's pretty low. When you reframe the question and ask their level of trust in the media outlet that they rely on most for their news, it goes up much higher. And also, there's a recent uh, uh, American Press Institute AP survey that posed that question and asked basically um, for the national media, the media in general, what percentage of Americans thought that they were moral, using that term moral. And it was only 24%. But the number more than doubled to 53% when, when people were asked about the news media they most rely on. So it's, it, it is a different thing. And, uh, and also, these numbers go up and down. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, the Pointer Institute, which is a very well-established media uh, think tank in Florida, right. um, noted that trust in the media generally is up since last year. Um, so they found roughly 73% of people had uh, a fair amount of confidence, at least, or a great deal of confidence in local newspapers. Um, but when they ask about national newspapers, that declines. Or when they ask the same question about your level of confidence in, in television, when they refer to the networks, the national ne- networks, that level of trust is lower than when you ask about their level of trust in their local TV station. So what does all this mean? I think what it means is that local and national news are are different things. Uh, people perceive them quite differently. Also, I'm assuming that uh, the documentation of the use of bots to uh, uh, elevate people's uh, anxieties or emotions also have uh, factors in here in the sense that People just who are surveying the news and not news junkies like we are probably have a different, difficult time sorting those out. They clearly do, and that gets back to the comment I made about having a hard time understanding what a journalist is or what journalism is. Um, you know, it's it, I, I have a lot of sympathy for someone who is watching cable news, whether it's MSNBC or Fox News or whatever, and you you see... Um, reporters who appear to be reporting the news straight, and in fact, with both of those institutions, there there are people who do that. But then they they hand off on the hour to people who are highly ideological or who have opinions and whatever. And so, in the minds of the average television viewer, I think they are probably struggling with, well, did that person who seemed to be a straight reporter are they? Uh, are they adopting the same views as this person who is ideological that just followed them on the air? It's very, very confusing. Uh, that's not the fault of uh, citizens trying to understand the media. Uh, that's, I think, our fault for not differentiating and not explaining uh, how we work or the differences in what is ideology and what is straight news reporting. This is new and different, but I also want to put it in a little historical perspective. Many of our listeners will remember the days of Richard Nixon and his first vice president, Spiro Agnew, who was designated as as Nixon's attack dog on the media in in his uh, speech on September 11th. uh, He 
called the news media Nattering Nabobs of Negativism. And, of course, he took credit for the line that we found out later was written written by William Sapphire, who (laughs) was uh, Nixon's speechwriter. But then also in May of that same year, May of 1970, May 22nd to be exact, he he took on, uh, said that uh, the spirit of the nation uh, is being deteriorated and tainted by an effete core of impudent snobs who characterized themselves as intellectuals. Now, both of those, uh, we can sort of chuckle about them today, both of those were shocking back in 1970, but it also sort of seemed like a toothless tiger back then and really had no lasting impact. You were a young reporter back in, in the 70s. It really didn't impact what you were doing, did it? No, I don't think it did. And I think one one thing that was very different about that time was that that was pre-internet. And so um, the reporting on Spiro Agnew's comments was basically controlled by three television networks or national newspapers. Uh, today, a Spiro Agnew, as a Donald Trump, has the ability to go around established media and uh, get his message out either through social media on their own or through friendly outlets, like whether it's Fox News or something like that. Another thing you raised, Tom, that I think is really important uh, just by even talking about Agnew is it's important to understand that we have faced presidents who were every bit as angry at the press as Donald Trump appears to be. I mean, if you go back to 1798, uh, President John Adams you know, he signed this Alien and Sedition Act that, uh, among other things, made it a crime even to criticize officials in the government. Or there's there's a quote that wasn't that many years after that that is often attributed, uh, it's from Thomas Jefferson, and, and it's often pointed to as uh, Jefferson being one of a great, great defenders of the press. And that quote, and a lot of people have heard it, 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 it was, were it left to me to decide whether we should have a government without newspapers or newspapers without a government, I should not hesitate a moment to prefer the latter. But so that changed. <laughs> but a lot of people don't remember right. a quote from him two years later in which he said, nothing can now be believed which is seen in a newspaper. Truth itself becomes vicious by being put in that polluted vehicle. Abraham Lincoln jailed two editors in New York simply because they published an inaccurate story about Lincoln, uh, saying Lincoln was going to draft people, uh, 400,000 men. So he just put them in jail, no trial. Franklin Roosevelt, 1942, uh, World War II wasn't going as well as uh, uh, the people thought it should. And at a news conference, he criticized a reporter for the New York Daily News and pulled out a Nazi iron cross and handed it to this reporter in a public event basically saying, you deserve this because you're aiding the enemy. So all these things are, uh, you know, presidents have always had a very tortured relationship. What's different now, I think, is uh, Trump's attacks that are highly personal on reporters and highly sustained. And, uh, and, you know, they're pretty relentless. And and we may want to get into this, but there's real 
security concern as a result of this. Well, there there is, a, but uh, in this article that David Remnick uh, from the New Yorker uh, put out in, in August fifteenth, if anybody's looking for it, uh, titled "Trump and the Enemies of of the People," he was really talking about uh, one of the differences here is not only a different media environment, but the fact that President Trump is a product of media, uh, both in personality and in election. Uh, And he knows media, and he knows how to use media, and he's using media against media, uh, and that that's different from past presidents. Yes, very different, uh, very, very uh, clever on his part. And as you noted, uh, he hates the media, but he also loves it. And, uh, and he has loved it at different times, and he has used it to his advantage, uh, sometimes even, uh, as we know now, uh, uh, talking to reporters as if he were a press spokesman for, for Donald Trump, when in fact it was Donald Trump right. himself. So when I think this really gets to uh, the key of his perception of what is fake news and uh, you know, in his mind, um, good reporting is reporting that favors Donald Trump. Um, fake news is negative stories about Donald Trump, even if they are true. And he claimed last week in his interview to Fox that not all media are enemies of the people. It's just those that purvey fake news. And <laughs> then he followed that up, but that's 70 to 80 percent of the media, you know? Yes, exactly. And I I think that begs the question of, uh, uh, you know, if we could get Donald Trump to actually talk about this in detail, what does he think constitutes fake news? And then, by extension, uh, his followers who believe in this, what do they mean when they say fake news? I don't think that most people in America, when they talk about fake news, believe that it's something that reporters just actually fabricated out of whole cloth. I think what most people are talking about is they believe fake news is when people plant fake stories and the news outlet just ran them without checking it out. Or they believe that there's just a a lack of editorial control in fact-checking through that process. Or it's maybe... um, they think fake news is editorial decisions about what to cover that may have an ideological bent to it. And then I think, finally, there are some people that view it just as um, fake news is truly fabricated, and they sort of um, view it as entertainment, like uh, Infowars. I mean, it's, for them, it's like big-time wrestling. You know, you, you're watching these two wrestlers, and you know it's fake, but it's kind of entertaining. But well, I think that's, that's, a, that's a minor number of people but but that uh, it, it sort of plays out though when you see people like jim acosta from cnn getting harassed at a a rally and then people turn around and want selfies with him i mean it's, <laughs> it, it, it it makes no sense but yet it yeah. does you know it's this it's this um uh, he's a celebrity, but he's the enemy. But he's yes, a celebrity. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's a bit of sport on some people's minds. I, I think what what everyone in the media and, the, and the, what I call the fact fact based press is dealing with or trying to comprehend is uh, when does it go too far, and when do Trump's attacks 
on the press um, sort of edge into incitement and create a climate that actually endangers the physical safety of journalists. I, I don't think that has happened now as a direct result, uh, but I will tell you that uh, news organizations are very, very concerned about this. Um, just in a, in a few weeks, the National Press Club is going to hold a summit on how to improve security for journalists and newsrooms because it's a big enough issue. We had a White House record, uh, correspondent just a couple days ago reveal that she has hired a private security guard because of death threats. We know that newsrooms and reporters uh, that cover Trump uh, have been put through hostile environment training so that when they go out and cover these rallies, they will be able to detect when a mob is about to descend on them. So that's, that's pretty scary stuff. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University is comprised of five schools, each offering a variety of majors and programs for students who want to pursue communication-related careers. From the highly technical information and telecommunication systems to the theoretical communication studies and everything in between, Programs in the college offer students both the fundamentals of communication practice and the tenacity and skills to further advance the field. In addition, the college is home to four centers and institutes that enable students to gain hands-on experience and learn new skills. You can learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. We talked about back in the days of Spiro Agnew and, and Richard Nixon and, and compared it to today. Two factors that are obviously different today, and I, I want to get your take on how they play into things, and, and we'll take them one at a time. The, the first is social media. You talked about the ability now of celebrities, athletes, politicians, whatever, bypassing the, the legitimate press and going directly to the, to the people. But it's not just the principal putting out information. It's all of the surrogates and all of the uh, people the, and getting down to the crazies then who put out misinformation or volatile information. Does that really change the equation here? I think it changes it dramatically. Uh, I mean, if, if we just look at um, the effectiveness of going around established media, you know, I'm going to have my, my facts wrong on this, but I think when, Don, uh, when Barack Obama ran in 2008, he was the first one to really use Twitter, and he had, I don't know, 90,000 Right. Twitter followers. Well, when he left office, he had something like 90 million, and uh, uh, that may be a high number, but it was in the tens of millions. It was actually more than Donald Trump has now, which probably uh, drove him drove Trump crazy. But, probably still but does. Think, <laughs> of, think of your ability as a lawmaker to, on your own, put out your message unfiltered, and then with all your friends uh, to make that go viral, and pretty soon you have your own sort of, uh, you've created your own sort of echo chamber where people who are predisposed to your way of thinking are having this information fed back to them 
by multiple different sources basically saying the same thing. And you don't know the people out there who will take some of this and and not put it through a filter, but take it as enemy of the people means somebody that we should do violence against. Yes, exactly. And, and that's what I think concerns a lot of people. That's a different factor. And then the other factor and uh, is Fox News and the role that it plays as some people call it, state TV. Uh, I don't know that I'd go that far, but it certainly is a factor that's different than historically we had in the 1970s. Uh, it's, it's different than any factor, and the combination of social media and Fox News uh, creates a, a real bulwark there. <laughs> It really does. Now, you know, I, I have my own problems with MSNBC and, and their sure. slant, but I, but I think Fox News is in a special category. And, uh, you know, going along with their uh, ideological bent and their clear agenda, uh, they're sort of working hand-in-glove with the president uh, in one sense because the president watches them so constantly and keys off of them often taking small tidbits of news items, and uh, suddenly you see a tweet from the president. He often uses that to change the subject, to get uh, bad news uh, off the main page and uh, get people talking about something else. Uh, of course, who does he grant his interviews to? Um, you know, mostly people with Fox News. So uh, it's, um, it's not my kind of journalism, let's just put it that way. Well, is it journalism in many respects? Well, I think uh, with Fox News, we have to make, that's a very good question, we have to make a distinction. I mean, there, there are some people at Fox News that I think um, do a pretty good job of playing it straight. I think Brett Baer is a, is a very good reporter, conscientious. But when you edge over into the commentary part, the Hannity parts, or the uh, uh, Tucker Carlson's and all that, that is clearly um, uh, orchestrated agenda setting. And, you know, to be fair to them, you can argue, well, that's, that's the opinion part of it. But um, Fox, uh, I think there's a melding of what they decide to cover as news and then what they comment, comment on. And uh, I think very often the, they are in sync. I think it's orchestrated in that way. This may be a convoluted question, so bear with me. But early after uh, President Trump was elected, uh, there was a, a woman on NPR who uh, made the statement that there is no such thing as truth. Uh, then we've had Kellyanne Conway talking about alternative facts. Uh, we had Ruli Giuliani uh, saying truth is not the truth in, in a sort of a bizarre moment. I think I know what he was trying to say, but that's not how it came out. Mm -hmm. uh, what role does truth play in all of this? And is it whose truth is it? Or is there still an ultimate truth that we're trying to seek? And is the value of that diminished? Yeah, those are all good questions. I think uh, in some instances, uh, truth is elusive. I mean, when, when journalists like me, have practiced our craft, uh, there are many, many times when we are just trying to get 
as close to what we think is truth, understanding that people can have different interpretations of uh, policy decisions or whatever. But I also think, separate from that, there is actual truth, and uh, often this would be um, demonstrable truth. So if we, if you take the size, uh, the photos of his inauguration, and right. you look at those and put them side by side with Obama's, and you have the Trump White House saying it's clearly larger, and you can see from the photo that it's not, well, that's where uh, verifiable truth comes in. Or when we get into data, um, very often, that is a form of truth that is sort of unassailable. That's the distinction I would draw there. But I, let me ask it a different way. Do you think mm-hmm. the news consumer still values truth? Or do, have yeah, we... That, I worry about that. Have we moved into the area that we just value our truth, the one that we want to hear? I think, unfortunately, we are moving toward our truth. And uh, and also, you know, because of the sort of relentless nature, a breathless nature of reporting now on the Internet uh, and um, cable TV shows, often when you have um, uh, news that is monumental, that is important, um, I think the public understandably has a hard time of putting that in context of saying, yes, this really is an important story today. And I think part of the problem is that we we are so breathless in constantly reporting breaking news or exclusives and all that. Uh, And because there's so much more media that it's hard for people to know. You and I are of an age when we watched network television. Mm -hmm. And when you heard the phrase, we interrupt this program for this special news bulletin. You knew that was something really, really important. important. Now we get that uh, ten times a day. Well, so and, I think it's and hard, hard for people to know. Breaking news that I hear at 11 o'clock uh, p.m. Uh, for something that I read at 8 a.m. is <laughs> not breaking yes. news in my mind. Yeah, sometimes I think that is breaking news to the producer putting it out. Uh, but but I, I, because like you, I'm a big consumer of news, I read it a half day earlier. So, Andy, let's let's take this a step further. Uh, there is, I think, growing concern about the president's example uh, globally. Uh, David Remnick in his article uh, pointed out that that was one of his major concerns. I know you've traveled the, the globe and work uh, with the uh, committee to protect journalists, uh, w- what kind of impact does this have in other areas of the world? Well, I think uh, the impact is, uh, I think, devastating for the concept of free press around the world. And uh, it, in a different era with a different president or different presidents, um, even if they did not like the coverage they were getting, they at least paid lip service publicly in their statements to the concept of a free and independent press. This president does not do that, and his bullying and taunting of the press uh, is used as an indication uh, for other uh, leaders who might be despots to say, look, uh, he does it, so I can do it too. 
at the Committee to Protect Journalists, which is a marvelous organization that was created many decades ago, mainly to help protect journalists outside the United States because it was not a problem here. Um, the research that's been done there shows a direct correlation between uh, the use of some phrases, anti-press phrases by Trump, and what's picked up by authoritarian leaders in other countries. So we know it's happening, and it creates just a terrible climate. And in addition to that, it's just a lost opportunity. A, a, a president who truly cared about this and wanted to set a high standard uh, that other nations should try to uh, achieve in terms of journalistic freedom and independence, that's, that's just a lost opportunity there. We, it's very, very hard to do that right now. What happens next? Uh, we had uh, 300 newspapers put out various uh, columns, editorials, op-ed pieces saying uh, we're not the enemies of the people. I think probably the nation had a big ho-hum sigh. Uh, with all of that, and it probably didn't have a whole lot of impact. Maybe that's just my cynicism. But but what's next? Um, I'm not sure what's next. Uh, I think that was an interesting effort. Uh, like you, I'm not sure how much uh, impact it had. There's also a separate debate in the journalism world as to whether that was a good idea, that we should uh, appear to the public that we are an organized entity collectively, uh, countering the president. Now, the, the those who were behind this idea of all these editorials said, no, everyone was free to write their own editorials, and they could do it whenever they wanted. But notably, there were some large publications like the Washington Post that did not take part just because they thought, no, this is playing into Trump's hand. All that aside, on the question of what next, I think the um, uh, the level of credibility we have in the press in America um, depends an awful lot on how the press um, uh, explains it, the way it works to the public. I, I think, as I go back to what I said earlier, I think people are terribly confused about what is a journalist, what is journalism, and they have no concept, or, nor should they be expected to have, as to what our editorial standards are. I think you and I have talked uh, yeah. before about when I was the ombudsman of the Washington Post, and you get a tremendous number of complaints about uh, accuracy in the paper, and it was my job to investigate that and go in the newsroom and trying to get to the bottom of these complaints. And when I would talk to readers who were lodging these complaints, one of the things that I would often say to them is, uh, I'll get back to you, but first let me see what our ethics code says about this particular thing. And almost every time they would be surprised that the Washington Post, a great global brand, even had an ethics code. Well, almost every news organization has an ethics code. Not that many actually share it publicly, put it on their website. So that's a start. Uh, I think when we report using confidential sources, it's not enough to simply say a source was granted anonymity because they weren't authorized to speak on something. I think readers want to know uh, things like, do you know the confidential source? Have you known them for many years? Did that source come to you and seek anonymity? Did you go to them? Did you seek them out? How many times have you used them? Are they from a political party that is at odds with the person you're writing about? All those things, uh, I think we could do a much better job of transparency. And, uh, and then the other thing is, um, 
standing for certain things as media in terms of coverage. So um, one thing that surveys repeatedly show with news organizations is that readers and viewers want them to play a watchdog role. And so if I were running a news, uh, newspaper, news organization, uh, I would be doing that. A lot of investigative reporting, a lot of fighting for public records, um, uh, along with explaining how and why we do our jobs the way we do. Well, Andy, we've got a lot to talk about in the future, so this is just probably the beginning of a long-standing conversation. I really appreciate your time and your observations and your expertise. Good. Always enjoy it. Thank you, Tom. Today, we've been talking with veteran award-winning journalist Andy Alexander about the danger of President Trump calling the news media the enemies of the people. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your podcast outlets. If you have questions or comments about any of our podcasts, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.